One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. A word of warning. This podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Please use your discretion. Hello and welcome to Reclaim Me. My name is Madeline Heather and today I am joined by a lovely young man, Ryan. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, you're coming to me all of the way from the UK. Whereabouts are you? Uh, I live in a small town called Doncaster. It's like an ex-mining village in Yorkshire. So right up north? Yeah, kind of up north, yeah. yeah. I love it. I love your accent. (laughs) I was listening to some... um, uh, and another podcast the other day, and it was on the um, on Peter Sutcliffe, and it was just so interesting listening to all of the local people that they interviewed between all of the that kind of region and all of their accents. They're so different between each little town. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, my nan always speaks about how um, she remembers, like with the whole Peter Sutcliffe thing women were so scared to go out and everything. She like, she remembers all that. Um, like we're around that area. So it's uh, crazy. That's absolutely like heartbreaking as well, um, because yeah. at that time the police did what they did recently with Sarah Everard, where they said to women locally, don't go out at night, basically. Yeah. It's so sad. It's like, it's always been like, focused around changing women's behavior rather than uh, hitting the actual issue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we're joined today together to talk about something um, awful that that you've had to go through and you've had to endure in in your life. Do you mind telling um, us a little bit about the background and and where this all started for you? Yeah, so um, I was sexually abused from the age of 8 to 13 and then I was physically abused from 13 to 16 um, to keep me quiet. And so my first memory of the abuse happening was, um, in the shower sea, I had this like fear of water when I was around, like from about ages four to like 10 or something like that. So I had this fear of water and, um, the only person who could actually like shower me or bath me at the time when I was younger was my auntie Jackie. <laughs> she wasn't actually my auntie. We had, I don't know if you have this in Australia, but we have this thing in Yorkshire. And like, if your mum's got a really close friend, you call them auntie. <laughs> yeah, I think pretty much my mum's got a lot of really close friends as well. And I, I call them, yeah, basically family. Pretty similar. Yeah. yeah, so it were always auntie Jackie. And she was like my second mum, basically. She was um, amazing. And yeah, she was the only one that could shower me. And what she used to tell me to do was... She used to tell me to look up towards the ceiling and speak to this like guy called Jack. It was like an imaginary friend. And um, she said, oh, you can tell him all your worries. And that was the only thing that had calmed me down. So then when the sexual abuse started, um, and this happened where my mum met this this guy from uh, the local church. She started going to church like quite recently. And I remember this guy from like really young. I still have memories like um, the, of the first time I met him. And I remember when I'd be walking around the church, I'd see him like staring at me and watching me. And I just thought as a kid, oh, he must be nice. And he he was always smiling and stuff. And then a few sort of weeks later, uh, basically after the service, they had this little hatch and they'd serve drinks and snacks for the kids. And I went over to this hatch and the man says to me, 
oh, I'll give you some extra biscuits. And I got extra biscuits over the other kids. And then okay, if you, so it started before he was like with your mother. Yeah. The group, like the sort of um, like trying to make contact with me and, and yeah, kind of like grooming, I guess started before you even spoke to my mom. Yeah. Um, and then obviously as they do, he um, found who my mum was and then asked her on a date, but weirdly asked if me and my sister could come with. So the only person that lived with me was my mum, uh, my sister and me. So, um, so yeah, we all went on this date to KFC, so classy guy. Um, <laughs> and we, we went on, on this date and um, and then things built from there and we visited his house and growing up like, I never grew up with a lot of money. We were like on this kind of like council estate thing. And um, my mum didn't have a lot of money. We were evicted when my dad walked out. Um, So when we saw his house and stuff, we was like, wow, this is great. And he had, I remember he had this like um, race car thing in his summer house and loads of stuff left from uh, his stepson. So I was like amazed with all this stuff. And it was very focused around little boy stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like, stuff that would intrigue me so an xbox and and things like that so it's like he was looking for a target in a way and uh, yeah absolutely well that's what a lot of those preferential offenders do when they're you know they're hunted on a certain age of a of a child um and then that's why a lot of you know people who are pedophiles work in um places like churches because they have access to children but I think from, you know, what you're saying, it's like maybe he started that relationship or, you know, engaged in potentially a relationship with your mother with you as the focus. Yeah, yeah, I believe that's that's um, that's the case. Um, when they started dating and stuff, we all obviously uh, got closer with him and um, people would say about me and him that we was like so close and um you know, people saw it in public how, how attached I became to him and stuff. And then we started staying at his house. And and the first time we stayed at his house, it came to, like, bath time. Um, so time for me to get a wash before school the next day. And um, I remember, like, kicking off and crying and stuff, and like I always did pretty much. And, um, and then he offered to help me, like, in the shower, offered to my mum to help me. And... Um, and so, like, that's what calmed me down. I thought, oh, my new best friend's going to help me in this, you know, it was one of the only thing I was scared of. So it was this huge thing for me. And it was like, all oh, right, this, like, yeah, like I said, the new my, my new best friend's going to help me with this. So um, I, I remember it a little bit. He, like, held my hand, helped, uh, helped me up the stairs and stuff. And then um, the abuse didn't happen the first time, but I, I particularly remember him staring at me. Um like, you know, when, I don't know if you can remember, but when, you know, your parents or whatever had helped you in the bath when you was really young and stuff, they wouldn't, like, stare at you. It'd be very, like, lucky away and, you know what I mean? They wouldn't purposely stare at, at your body. Yeah, definitely. It would just be, like, more of a playful thing almost and then yeah, it would be, like, yeah. teaching you how to wash your hair and things like that, but, yeah, not looking at your body. Yeah, and I just particularly remember how weird it was. And then he was like, "Oh, has your mum ever shown you how to wash your willy?" And that's that's the term that I used. Um, and I was like, "No," <laughs> and I was like confused. And then um, he basically showed me, and that was the first time. And then um, we stayed the second time, and then this is when the sexual abuse began fully. And um, and yeah, and. It was the same thing in the shower um, and he molested me the first time and then it sort of built from there. And did he like start this and then was he like don't tell anybody about it or was it kind of just known that this was like something between you that that was almost special or something that he built it up to be like that? Yeah, so it was like this is what dads do. That was his attitude and I remember him saying a lot like, oh, this is what dads are supposed to do. You haven't had your dad around a lot, so I'm going to show you and I'm going to be your dad, basically. And as I, when I was younger, I always wanted a dad like my friends. Like, I saw, like, my friends playing football with 
uh, their dads and playing on the Xbox and stuff. And I remember always wanting that kind of relationship. And, and so like, you know, we drew me in with that and I just thought, you know, this must be all right as an adult. And I hadn't been, you know, taught anything like specifically, you know, body safety and stuff. So. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you've been groomed and then you're also kind of grateful to be in this wonderful house. It's so different. Look at all of these wonderful things. Um, and you don't know any different as well. You're not, you've probably not been taught any of, you know, we, at that age, I remember we were always taught stranger danger and this isn't a stranger and he works in a church and it must've just been, it's all, you know, smoke and mirrors kind of thing for what was actually going on. Yeah, it was exactly that. Like, um, and this, this, you know, that kind of thing continued throughout, like it took us on nice holidays and, and so it was that kind of like, you have a weird feeling about it. Like, you know, it's uncomfortable and that it's not quite right, but you kind of just, you know, trust the adult, (laughs) you know, when it's. Especially when you're that young as well, you know, and it's just such a different situation and it's made for you to feel more special because you're the boy Um, and he's the dad kind of thing. It's like this father-son relationship as opposed to your mum or your sister. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that was it. And, and, you know, when the like abuse advanced and stuff, it would happen all over the house and like, after school in my bedroom and my my sister was literally in the bedroom next to us and in the garage and in his office and like it just grew so fast it was like my little brain couldn't comprehend it and then before I knew it it was at a point where like I kind of knew it was wrong and but I was so deep in it was like how do I get out of this yeah that's I'm so sorry that you went through that it is so unfathomable that somebody would hurt a child or hurt anybody in that regard, but to hurt a child and consistently one that's in your care um, is just so unfathomable, I think, for most people to do that. Was it, was he at this stage as well? Like, was he doing this every day, basically? So um, we stayed like quite frequently. um, And then their their relationship grew, my mum and his and and we ended up moving in. So, um, and only for a few weeks we were moved in and then they got married. And during this time of moving in and stuff, it became every day, like, cause you know, you have a bath every night before school and, and it became his job to do it. So, you know, it, it became every day and, and things were added. Um, like it made me touch him and, and, um, you know, and, do do it to each other and and you know it, that's as far as it went but um but yeah he'd always try and advance it and you know at points it was scary and once they got married we were going on holidays and stuff and I have this particular memory of being on holiday and um we'd been on the flight there so I was really tired and I think I was only like 10 and I'm like exhausted and I flat out lay on the bed and he's trying to molest me and stuff and and I remember just thinking in my head, I just want to go to sleep. And I was crying, like, with my back turned to him. And I was just weeping and, like, and then he was trying to um, put it inside me. So, like, I squirmed and I, and I kind of screamed. And um, and that was the first hint of, like, his aggression towards me. Like, um, I could ne- I, he'd never shouted at me, like, properly and like I remember him shouting right in my face and the spit going on my face and everything and uh, his hand like on my chest and stopping me from breathing and um and ever from that ever since from that point I was scared to go to sleep anywhere like I'd be up all night in my own room at home just scared that he's going to come in and try that my god it's just terrifying that you know aggression and stuff must be this the real person as well like he's wearing a mask all of the time to to make this this loving kind of experience and then as he tries to advance and as he tries to like maintain control over you or loses control because you're not complying with him his real true aggressive self kind of comes out in an effort to control you yeah and that's it and that was pretty much the only time around the time the sexual abuse was happening that it was 
fully aggressive. It was only after when it became like more clear what this, like how aggressive this guy was. Um, and when I started to understand what had happened, it was like, um, you know, you get them feelings of like, I don't know how to describe it. Like someone's just taken, taken advantage of you, which they have. And kind of like that kind of demasculinized because, you know, society tells you that you have to be this strong guy and, you know, one of the worst things that can happen to a man, one of the most demoralizing things that can happen has happened to me. And so, you know, I felt like in my young teenage brain, like I could never be a proper man, whatever that, yeah, I think, you know, whatever society says that is. Yeah. I've spoken to a few male victims as well who have said something really similar. And I think in the age that we grew up to, it was bad to be gay and to be molested or sexually assaulted by another man was also that added level um, for a lot of people. And it's just, you know, the stigma associated with with all of it is just so hard to go through. And then you start going through, you know, puberty and you start to develop your own feelings towards different things and learn about um, sex and touching and things like that. Do you remember a time where you learned that, okay, this isn't right. Were you like in a class or something or was it something that your knowledge just developed where you were like, okay, I have an inkling now and then you you kind of developed your understanding a little bit further and further that this what he was doing was wrong? Yeah, so I have a few like little sparks I can remember where it was like little moments where I sort of ended up, you know, understanding what had happened. But uh, one of the main things is that in the UK in schools and stuff, especially like high schools, they joke about paedophiles and nonces or whatever every single day like there's always a nonce joke going around um and I was like what does that even mean so uh, I remember looking into it and stuff and and I was like hang on a minute that is that explains exactly what happened to me so this was like after it faded out because the sexual abuse faded out when I was 13 I say faded out it like didn't just stop it like went on for a little bit but happened less frequently and it was when I started hitting puberty and he'd get angry with me that, you know, my body was looking older and, um, you know, like I have memories of that. And and so when I began to realise that what paedophilia is, then I ended up watching this documentary. I can't remember the name, but it was this little girl and they was talking about her experiences and stuff. And then I was like, that sounds exactly like me. And then, yeah, that's when I realised. Yeah. That's really interesting that like, yeah, it's come out of a joke. Even for you now, like hearing people make jokes about pedophiles, does that annoy you or are you in – because like I know people make rape jokes all the time and I find them abhorrent. I don't think that they're funny at all. As that being like your um, introduction into understanding this, is how is it when you do hear jokes like that now? I think it depends on the type of joke. Like if you're taking the mess out of – a paedophile uh, who's, you know, been convicted and stuff, um, then I think, yeah, joke about them, like, fuck them, you know what I mean? But, um, and it's focused around, like, survivors and stuff, like, if you're making jokes, you know, aimed at survivors of abuse, then, yeah, I feel like that's completely wrong, like, and hurtful. I have heard little things, um, I can't remember what, but where people sort of, um, speak about male survivors being gay like and stuff so and that's exactly what my abuser told me I have a memory of him saying um, things like what do you want your friends to think you're gay when they find out about what I've done and so when I hear jokes like that then yeah that does have an impact it takes me right back to being in that kind of situation oh my word and I think that's just so one of those grooming tactics to make sure that you stay quiet you know you've got the one level where it was kind of love almost you know this is this father figure thing and then you've got the the threats and stuff so you must have been so confused in your mind for so long about what was actually going on yeah it was only when I got to sort of 15 where my head was like oh my god like this has happened and this is my dad this is my dad that's done this and you know that's what he became over the years like a proper dad and and I'm not like trying to make out as if I was like locked in some basement being sexually abused and stuff. Cause it wasn't like that. Like I said, we was going on holidays. Uh, 
you know, I had a decent life and other than what was happening. And, and so it was very confusing because I was like, when I'd see the adverts from the NSPCC and stuff, it'd always be this little girl and she'd be like dirty, laid on this floor and, you know, that kind of picture. And so it made me feel very like, is what is happening to me or happening to me that bad? That's what it made me question. And I, and I lived like that for a long time and it did take me down like quite a dark path. And I remember being 14, 15 and feeling like very suicidal. And on my way to school, there'd be this like, really busy road and I'd count down the seconds that I was going to jump in front of cars and luckily I never did it but it was on my mind every day just ending my life. That's really horrible to hear especially because you're at such a vulnerable age at that time as well you've got so much going on in development um, your you know sleep's always going to be interrupted with growing up and you know with everything as well, and I've spoken to a few survivors of child sexual abuse, especially ones that have gone on, and they've said that same thing, like you've got these really contrasting feelings towards this person, you know, this love and adoration on one side because they look after you, they put a roof over your head, they can be loving at times, but then they're doing this to you and it's so hard to reconcile that feeling. Yeah, that's so true. That's like one of the hardest things about it and survivor's guilt. And to skip forward to when I told the police, like I remember being in my workplace toilet, just bawling my eyes out because I was about to go and tell the police about what he'd been doing to me. And I remember thinking about all the like good memories and and stuff. But when you come around to understand that this person has purposely done this to manipulate you and get what they want out of you, uh, you know, you've got to go you know, along that healing um, to understand that. So, yeah. So the abuse kind of, you know, slowly stopped over time. Um, and then you said he became quite physically abusive. Was that kind of like a transition from the sexual abuse to the more physical abuse? Yeah. So when it began to fade out and stuff, he was getting more like physical, like with the sexual abuse and stuff, like getting angry at me and it make me shave and stuff. So I looked younger and, and um, and then, like I said, when I was around 14, 15 and I was quite suicidal, I remember confronting him and I said to him, I know what what you was doing when I was younger was wrong. And um, and then this was the first time that he physically, like, um, assaulted me. And I, I can't remember it, like, fully in detail because it was, like, really quick. But I remember him grabbing my throat and then I was up against the um, wall near the bottom of the stairs and then I remember seeing these little flashes and I I thought like, oh, is this my life flashing before my eyes? It was really odd. I don't know what it was, but like there was flashing and little dots of light in my eyes and little colours and stuff. And like I blacked out for a few seconds and when I came round, I was like slumped on the floor and my stomach was hurting. And so I think he kicked me or punched me. Um, and um, he was like telling me if I tell anyone that he'll kill my mom. Um, that shit's going to get a lot more serious from now and I'm not going to get it easy. And um, he'd always tell me that his dad abused him when he was younger and that um, I got it lucky. And he, he told me that you're not going to be lucky anymore. Um, and, yeah, and, and then from there it was pretty much interrogated every day and and then this progressed to, like, emotional and psychological. I remember being laid in bed one night and they were like a computer at the end of my bed and I'm like laid in bed and the webcam light comes on and I'm like what the hell because I know that you know someone has to be on the camera and so I like crawled under where I thought the camera could see and I get to the desk and um I click on the screen so my computer would come on and um the screen comes on and it's my camera and I'm like facing myself in this on this screen and it's me just stood there and then it quickly all goes off. It was like something out of a horror film, you know, when it goes like, dun. <laughs> yeah. Like, like in real life, like I felt this jump of like anxiety, but it didn't like click to me straight away or it could be him. It was like, I'm being hacked or something. Um, yeah. But it happened so often after that, like I kept seeing it, kept seeing it. And I thought, okay, maybe, maybe it is him. Because he always knew, like, you know, as teenagers, you sneak on your phone and stuff when you're meant to be asleep. And he always knew that I was doing that. So I was like, how does he know that I'm on my phone? Um, 
And so one day it came on and it was actually in the afternoon, which was really rare. And I was just laid on my bed after school and then I see it come on. So I quickly run downstairs and he sat there on this little chair. Luckily the chair is literally around the corner from the bottom of the stairs. And he's like trying to mess with it. And I can see my computer screen on his phone screen. Um, and so that's when I knew that it was him that was watching me. And I also discovered another camera in my room in the top corner, which was connected to this little box that recorded all the CCTV. So we had this constant loop of recording of my bedroom. Oh my gosh, that is just like terrifying. What was it like when you figured that out? Was it, were you, did you confront him in any way or was it just one of those, an additional tactic that he was using to manipulate and basically torture you? Yeah, I didn't dare confront him about it because at this point he was like very, I thought I was going to die. Like I thought he was going to kill me one day. So I, um, like from then on, I had to try and like get changed behind towels and stuff because I was kind of like, I need to kind of show him that I know, but not say it. So he can't like, because he might think, oh, he knows, but he might not know. Um, so it was that kind of like elephant in the room where I knew about the cameras and he thought I knew, but didn't quite know if I knew. And if he just said it, then he'd know I knew. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so... Yeah, it was. I, I didn't dare confront him about, confront him about it, but I had like methods to try and get change without him watching me. And I didn't know where all that footage and stuff would go or where it was going, so I was quite concerned about that. Um, yeah, have you ever found out if that was ever like used or sold um, online or anything, or is that n- nothing that you've been able to um, figure that out? So, like, this is, like, really frustrating part of this story. It's, like, so when he got arrested and stuff, obviously I'll go into, like, how that happened. But when he got arrested and stuff, his friend, for some stupid reason, went and took him all his computer shit. So we never got to give that to the police. And before, you know, the police were looking at all that, he didn't have any computers. So there were no, like... I don't think there was anything found. They did say they found something on his work laptop, but they wouldn't tell me. And obviously I'll go into later why the court case didn't go through and stuff. But yeah. That's really frustrating. So I saw on your video as well, because I've watched that, because um, you're you're doing so, such a wonderful thing by, by sharing your story and speaking so openly about it, um, that you did confront him eventually and, and go to the police when you were on your way to work. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's true. So this all built up like my depression and stuff. I felt very trapped. He was tracking my phone, like I say, with the cameras and everything. And, you know, I was still living with the shame of everything that happened when I was younger. So I was just really, really depressed. And every day I felt about, and like I thought about ending my own life. And, and then it came to the point where I was like, okay, I'm going to set a day. So I set this day. It was November 2nd or 3rd. Um, and this was, I set it like a few days before. And so I had time to like write letters. And so I wrote all these letters and on the day that I was going to do it, I was going to, um, go in the shower and I had a shift, at um, I think it was like three o'clock at McDonald's where I used to work. And, um, so I was going to get in the shower like normal, but instead I was going to, um, use, these little two blades that I'd taped together and cut my wrist as deep as I could and then sit in the shower and, and kind of bleed out. Um, and so I put the suicide letters on this like little shelf near my desk, went into the bathroom. I was literally had the blade already into the side of my wrist and then I get a phone call and I pick up the phone and it's my girlfriend, Sophie. And uh, she says, I know something's wrong. And in the few days before, I'd been, like, doing these, like, little hints of, like, kind of like a help me kind of thing, but not direct. Um, I said to her, oh, what?" because we watched this documentary about child abuse, I was like, oh, what would you say to me if I got abused? And, like, weird stuff like that. And, you know, I was kind of, like, hinting at at it. And and so she'd, she'd heard this for the last couple of days, and then she was like, I know something's wrong. And, you know, in that point, it's weird because when you're in that point of you're ready to end your life, it's such a bubble. Like your brain doesn't, it doesn't go to logical options. It's just 
and it feels like it's so odd and i don't know like if anyone out there can relate to this but it felt like i'd gone in too deep and if i wasn't going to do it then i was like breaking some pact and letting i don't know like it, it was a weird feeling but everything yeah. just came out and um and i just told her everything and then we made a little plan that i'd go to work like normal and my abuser actually had to take me to work because he had to make sure that's where i was going and um and yeah so we made this plan that i'd go to work like normal but instead hide in the toilets and then sophie and her mum had come and pick me up and take me to the police station and so I did that. I got in the shower. Um, but when I got out of the shower and I came into the room, the suicide letters were gone. So I thought, shit, what am I going to do? But luckily, like, I didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. And so um, I bagged my toothbrush, bagged my clothes and stuff, and um, and then went to work. And on the drive there, he was like, oh, you've been acting depressed this morning. Your mum's going to start getting suspicious and asking questions. And it was always like this, like constantly drilling my head. Like, And so I ended up just breaking. We got there and, you know, it was in public. And and so I opened, like I had my hand, my hand on the handle and I said, oh, I don't want to keep your secret anymore. And I quickly like jumped out and he went to grab my sleeve and, um, and I think he said something like, stop, stop it with this attitude, right? And something like that, um, which is something that he said all the time, which kind of meant like, shut up and listen to me. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and, and that was the last time, last thing I said to him. And Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And yeah. And then did you go into work like did your plan kind of come through or how how yeah, did yeah. it go from there so like I felt this like I said earlier I felt this like deep guilt and so I like went into the toilets and I was just crying like bawling my eyes out and I remember like whispering sorry like kind of to him in my head and I don't know why but it's just kind of the mindset I was in and and then Sophie and him were outside so I went outside and then we drove to the police station and you know what was crazy we walked into the police station, this like dopey police officer uh, opened door and I was like, it was like, oh, what are you reporting? And then Sophie's mum tried to answer for me because I was like crying. She didn't know like, how to say it. It was like a really awkward situation. And so I said, oh, sexual abuse. And then he went off and then he came back and he was like, I don't know if you're going to be able to see someone today. I was like, oh what my are you gosh. talking about? Like, what am I meant to do then? Like, I can't go home. Like, if I go home, you're going to be dealing with probably a murder case like, he will kill me if I know, if he knows that I've been here. And, um, yeah, it was so scary. And That's then, so wonderful that you had those two people there as well, though, like that she was of sound mind enough, your girlfriend, Sophie, to kind of go, oh, my gosh, 
I'm telling my mum and that yeah. there's an adult in the room that is like, okay, we're going to do this. I'm going to support you and, and come up with a plan to safely get you there. Um, good on her like as well. That's such an incredible thing. Yeah. So was, could you not walk sorry. into the police station? Sorry. It was kind of hard to get into. We had this like fence and we had to press this button. It was so hard to do. And then when we got in, it was like, um, yeah, it's just this one dude and he didn't really know what he was doing. Uh, but luckily he brought his two staff members down and, and they were, they were really trained and knew exactly what to do. And they sent me off to this like center where I did this video interview and, and yeah, it was, it was crazy because I was sat in this interview with this guy who's called Adam and halfway through he said right they're going to arrest him now and it was like this crazy like liberating feeling of like oh my god it's over like it's over but I also had this thing in the back of my mind like I felt I always felt like my mum and my sister would like kind of believe him and be on his side because that's what I'd always been told and like what had been drilled into my head so it was like um yeah it was a it was a mix of emotions but it was a crazy like freedom of like lifting feeling um and yeah great great feeling that's so good and you know it goes back to that kind of feeling as well of like the kind of guilt but you but like excitement at the same time like that it's just I can't even fathom what that would feel like to be so juxtaposed in your feelings um in that moment but and the adrenaline of being there um that's just such it's so incredible to think about so do you – how old were you then? Was this at 16? Yeah, this was 16 years old. I was, like, amazed with how Sophie dealt with it. Like you said, it was like she was 16 and she was hearing this. And she'd been brought up in, like, this kind of conservative family, don't talk about sex and don't, you know, speak about anything like that. And so I was, like, so shocked with how well she dealt with it. And at 16, yeah, crazy. And that's just incredible as well because you've been told for so long that – you know, you're nobody's going to believe you. Um, they're going to think that you're gay, and you've you've got this feeling in in your head as you go through that. To have her respond that way is so must have been so liberating for you. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. It was a it was a weird day, and like I was very dissociated and and everything. But I just remember that feeling of like, okay, this is my new chapter of my life with these people and and yeah and, and that's what happened I stayed the night at Sophie's mum's on the sofa and all night I was staying awake like thinking that he was going to pull up and um but what's really frustrating is um like I said his friends went and got his computer and then after hearing what he this was like a family friend as well after hearing what he had um done to me and what he'd been accused of is how Andrew would have said it um that's my stepdad so I don't think I said his name um and so they went up and met him took his all his computer stuff and had a drink with him after hearing like what had happened his friends did yeah well family friends so basically family friends my gosh yeah it was and like that was that was the first time I felt like okay so they don't believe me um and yeah, that that like really hit me hard because their son, so this were two people, um, and their son saw me on the bus because I went I went straight to college the day after. I just went straight back into everything, and I saw him on the bus the day after, and he was like, "Oh, I felt I felt sorry for him. You were crying and everything." And I'm like, "Why the fuck are you telling me that? Like, I don't need to hear that. I don't care." Like. And obviously that guilt was still playing in my mind. So that just built it all up. And and then I went into sort of this like deep kind of depression and I didn't leave the house for months and I felt so ashamed and like people didn't believe me and that everyone in the world knew about it. And in the time the abuse was happening, like I didn't want anyone to know about it. That's why suicide felt like the only option. Like the worst thing in the world for me was for people to find out. Yeah. And so like now people knew and people we felt like everyone were on his side even though they weren't um yeah it was like just drawing me into this like kind of depression and um I ended up like starving myself and going to A&E and everything over the next couple of months and and yeah it was a really dark time after that but 
That's re- I really relate to that feeling as well, though, because when when my abuse came out, um, I just remember feeling like everybody was staring at me at school, and while a lot of people knew and you know everything, when I came out recently and, and told my story and posted episode one of Reclaim Me, um, a lot of people that went to school with me actually reached out and said that they didn't know, which was quite shocking to me because you you have this almost built in paranoia and shame. And I felt so much guilt for the man who perpetrated it against me because I felt sorry for the fact that he was in jail and he wasn't going to be there for his daughter. But then also I had the same thing with people being like, you know, um, his partner actually attacked him that night and he he got cuts on his face and, um, you know, I think that he didn't mean to do it or making excuses and shit. And that made my blood boil that people would say things like that to me and it's so wrong for somebody to come up to you. You're a kid. He's been doing this for so long. And to hear that and go have a drink with him and then to have the gall to say to you, he was crying, I feel sorry for him. Oh, my God. It's know, just. Yeah. It was so frustrating. And it's like the whole computer situation as well. Like that could have been a crucial part of the case. Like that could have had so much evidence on and, you know, it just makes me feel suspicious towards them, to be honest, like, and that's just something I'm working through now, like trying to figure out what that deal was all about. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, why would you co- cover up pedophilia? What would what would give you the indication that you would ever want to do that from anybody, you know, other, unless you are one? Um, yeah, you know. yeah. So when you'd gone in and you had made your statement and everything, what was it like when you're – mum found out about what what the allegations were that you were making yeah so the um police went to arrest him like I said and my mum was in um my sister was at work and so it was just him and my mum and when they came in um there was like oh well when the police knocked on the door he went and answered and they came in and there was all in the living room and it's like oh someone's made an allegation of sexual abuse against you and I didn't mention this before, but this guy has actually had two other allegations made against him while mum's been with him. So it was kind of like, what, another one kind of thing? And I think like it was kind of like clogging, like she was kind of like clocking on to something. And yeah. uh, and so the, the I'll go into the first two allegations. So I can't say who it was against, but um, one of them just before we met him, he just basically beating the court case like he just got found not guilty the second one um i remember coming home from football practice while i was at high school and i walked through the door and there's a social worker stood there with police officers they sit me down and like start asking if he's abused me and i said no and like i was still in that stage of like misunderstanding what had happened and um and then what actually happened to the guy is that the case didn't go through because he ended up ending in ending his own life Oh, my gosh. So, like, and then, you know, even now, like, I think about him every day because, like, like that could have been me. And it's just so heartbreaking that he felt that no one believed him for years. Like, this happened years and years ago. Like, way before he met us, way before the other case. Like, this happened years ago. And the file got lost by the police. Oh, my gosh. This was, like before things were more organized he didn't hear anything back from the police after going and telling him oh i've been sexually abused by this man and so you know he he went through his life believing that um it was never believed and that's what led him to suicide yeah or that nobody cared you know if they've not even cared to call him back with such a serious allegation and explain why they haven't done anything like that must have just been such an isolating feeling for him my abuser, Andrew, was celebrating this, celebrating oh guy, this young guy's death. It was horrible. And obviously I'm sat there and I know exactly what that what that guy went through. And it's just such a typical thing of a pedophile um, that they have honed their craft, in inverted commas, over a number of years and they leave a wake of victims. They don't care and where there is one there is often many many more um and that's why you see i think 
in the media and things as well, especially with with an allegation of child sexual abuse that comes forward um, openly, especially on the media with somebody like a priest or something like that, mm. there will always be more that will eventually come forward. And they come forward because they see that they weren't the only one and that somebody's been able to, you know, articulate something that they went through. Um, so it's not shocking to hear that he had other victims, but it's just so tragic that the system failed this young man and his life was lost. I know. And like after, after everything came out and stuff, and just recently I've been speak, I've been trying to get hold of people from his past and I got hold of someone that he knew like years and years ago. And like, there was three other people that he abused. And he told. He also told me about something else. He told me that he raped a member of his family over a bar uh, when he used to run a pub. So I don't. I can't even count the amount of victims that he had. And and one particular story that this person from his past told me about was it, oh, it's heartbreaking. So this um, this young boy, um, his mum knew Andrew, and whenever he was naughty, she'd send him to Andrew's house, and he'd come back silent. And I just think. Oh, like what did that little boy go through there to make him come back and and be silent? And what what would make her think that that was like a good? Oh, okay, I'll go. He'll sort him out. Like that's oh my gosh, that would have been. It's just mind boggling to think about. I know. So when your mum found out about the allegation, was she told in that moment that it was you that made the allegation, or you know what was that like? Did your mum and sister kind of believe you straight away or when he was taken away that on that day? Yeah, so like I said, when the police officer came in, she was kind of like, what, another one? And then, like, was kind of concerned because this was the third one that she knew about and and they didn't say who at the start and then he went upstairs. He was, like, obsessed with going upstairs apparently and causing this big issue that he wanted to go upstairs. So he said, all right, you can go upstairs, but we're coming with you. And so apparently he just grabbed the jumper and while he was upstairs and, and then walking through the living room, um, the police officer apparently got annoyed with Andrew and just said to my mom, oh, Ryan's made the allegation. And so my mom rose up and was screaming at him and stuff. And, and then they took him away in the car. Um, but, and then that night when I was staying at Sophie's house, uh, my mum and sister came and sort of we spoke about it and, yeah, they, they believed me straight away. That's It's like I've got goosebumps because as a mother, if she she must have felt so guilty as well for allowing, for kind of putting you in that position, you know, like I'm making, you know, there was two allegations. She was aware that maybe something was going on um, and, it was because of her that you were there, you know, the, her relationship. But it's obviously not in that same breath her fault. Like I can't imagine for her how guilty she must feel. Yeah, and like these people know what they're doing. Like he, knew, he was he was like the perfect manipulator in a way. Like everyone around him thought he was the centre of the party, this amazing guy and he did charity work and, you know, it kind of overshadowed these little hiccups. And like I said, that's what they do. That's what they perfect and, and why they are so, you know, why they get away with it so much. Yeah, and why they're so prolific. It's um they don't just groom the victim, they usually groom everybody around them. Yeah. Um and it's terrifying, but it's something that we need to talk about as well. It's like a pedophile doesn't look like, you know, you can't spot one. Um the same way that you can't spot um like a an attacker, you have this thing in your mind where you think it's a stranger in a dark alley that's wearing a trench coat kind of thing. And, you know, somebody that's sexually abusing children, somebody who rapes women or, you know, spikes people's drinks, they don't have a specific look to them. You can't, you know, pick them out of a lineup. But they can also be, from the outside looking in, very productive and, you know, lovely members of the community. They could be people who, like you just said, um, donate to charity or foster children or, um, you know, feed the homeless and stuff. And from the outside, they're trying to do that to build up this wonderful facade so that you second guess your thoughts even when you're confronted with 
an allegation, you go, but he's such a lovely man and he actually fosters young children or something. He couldn't possibly sexually abuse them. And you go, well, he's kind of creating an environment where he can. And it was a case that happened in Australia recently. And or um, I think the Sandusky case is really similar as well. And it's just a part that I think that we need to teach children more is that, and teach the community more, is that just because from the outside looking in, you look like a good and productive member of society does not mean that you aren't doing other things that are wrong. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. And I was talking to a friend um, the other day about prevention and stuff. And it's like, we teach like our, ch- our children, like you said, oh, stranger danger and stuff. Um, and so why aren't we teaching them, you know, like body safety and, and like what it took for me was, um, you know, like a little, a little outsider's perspective, like Sophie was telling me, oh, what, what Andrew, how Andrew treats you is wrong. And, you know, that little bit of outside, um, like communication and stuff led to me probably, probably was the main reason why I spoke up like understanding that what he was doing was wrong from people outside of the situation is so important. So we need to make it our responsibility, no matter what, you know, no matter who you are to the child, make it your responsibility as well as a collective, as a community um, to communicate to that child, right? This is a healthy relationship. This is what should happen. And um, this is where you shouldn't be touched. And, you know, it, it take. I, I think, if we're talking about prevention, like it takes a community to to help a child understand that. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think I heard this um, one saying from um, Jim Clementi, who's a former FBI behavioral analyst, um, and he specialized in child cases. And he always said, if somebody is hanging around with your child more than you want to hang around with your child, because adults n- naturally can't be around children all day, every day. Like it becomes exhausting and annoying. You want to have adult interactions. Yeah. But if somebody's hanging around with your child more than you want to, that's a red flag. And that was a really big eye opener for me because like you said before, initially everyone's like, oh my God, what an incredible relationship um, that that this man has got with this young boy. Like it's wonderful. But I think for a lot of people now, the more and more we educate them, they can also start to see these red flags and go, why is this young child so attached to this man that he barely knows? And why is he hanging around with Ryan so often? And, and you know, you know, those are things that we can do better as well is to educate people on red flags that they can notice. And I don't know the laws in the UK. Um, I'll look it up. But basically in Australia, anybody over the age of 18 is a mandated reporter. So that means that they have to even if they see something like that as a red flag, they have to notify somebody about it. Um, In America, people who are mandated reporters are like teachers and doctors and people in those types of professions. Um, But I think it's important that as a community, um, we also know that it is up to us as adults to call it out and to raise, like, you know, if nothing's going on in social services, get involved, that's okay. Um, yeah. And that's the worst thing that can happen. But often people will say things like, oh, it's not my job to get involved. You know, what if what if it's not true? And, you know, but what if it is? So <laughs> it's really important. Yeah, that's that so that's- true. Like, one of the things about me now is like there was once this scenario like near where I live and I saw this man and he was like ragging his children around and like I just didn't like the whole attitude. And so we can do like a, an anonymous report thing to Childline. And so I did that straight away. I gave the address and and that's what it takes. Just being aware, no matter what connection you are to this child, being aware of it and just making sure that it's looked into. Absolutely. So after, you know, that's all happened and his friends have taken all of his computers, that is just so, I can't imagine how annoying that, that must feel. Um, what was the process? So he was arrested. Was he remanded in custody? Did or could he go home at any point? So he wasn't allowed back to the property, but uh, he, I, I was told he was um, staying in this hotel um, in, in the town centre, and um, and he was on. He was kind of like on bail, but under investigation. And then he was just under investigation, and um, and yeah, I was like told by his friends that he was like or like 
meeting up with prostitutes and stuff and acting like crazy and drinking loads and like still like that kind of trying to make me feel sorry for him kind of thing. And, um, and then after that, I didn't really hear much. Um, I knew that he was living, I knew where he was living. Um, but yeah, I didn't hear much from anyone. And, and then, uh, I think it was my sister. She found his Facebook page and saw that he was on holiday in Thailand. Oh no. (laughs) Which is like, a country notorious for white wealthy men going over and abusing children. Um, and he had all these little like teenage Asian boys as friends on Facebook. So it's like, oh, are they no. watching him? Are they keeping an eye? No, they're not. And there was like a picture of him on his, on the zip line, having the time of his life. And it's like, what the hell? And I'm sat here at this point when I found this out, I was sat on the sofa, the skinniest I've ever been in my life gone. And like, I think it was like a couple of days after I went to A&E because I wasn't eating. Like that was the situations we were both in and it was just, it felt so unfair. Yeah, that must have been really annoying. And it's kind of shocking that an allegation like that can be made and there's already two other allegations on record that the police have um, and that he's still allowed to leave the country um, and possibly never come back. You know, he could just stay over there. Yeah, that's so true. I, I didn't think he would come back. Um, I didn't know the timeline, how long he was there, but it looked like quite a long time. Like his posts were quite far apart and his job was, if he was still in the same job, it was very flexible. Like he always worked from home and kind of had a little office at home. And so it was like he could have been over there for months and <laughs> no one cared, like no one was keeping an eye on him. And It concerns me what he did over there as well. And you never know, it's so hidden over there. It's a lot like children are abused over there, like at crazy numbers and are never given justice. And so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a whole industry um, in a lot of countries and it's terrifying Yeah, to think almost that he was allowed to leave in a situation where people knew that he was a danger to society. And was he, so he did come back. Was he ever um, properly charged? So they say in the UK you're charged um, like before you go to court or something. She said that he was charged, um, what my victim support worker said, and he was brought in for more questioning when they found stuff, like I said, on his work laptop. Um, I don't know what that was. They never told me. Apparently it wasn't me. So that's even more concerning. Uh, Yeah. Like a few months passed and I didn't hear anything again. Um, And then like like a year or so passed and – and I, I always, in this time, I always searched up his name, trying to find stuff, and and I found that he went bankrupt, so he must have lost his job. Um, and then I was in a mall at the time, near where I live, and I get a phone call from the police officer who's dealing with the case, and she says, I need to speak with you urgently. And, and so I meet her that night, she comes around to my house, and strangely in the car with her is Adam, the first person who interviewed me about it. Okay. So that was like this crazy feeling like, oh my God, like <laughs> he was the first person that I told fully about this and, and he's here again. So I kind of knew something crazy had happened. And mm. um, and then she came in, said, oh, sit down. I'm, I'm going to tell you something big. And, and she said, oh, um, Andrew, your abu- the person who abused you has died. Jesus Christ. Like I didn't even... I didn't even know how to process that, to be honest. Like, it was um, like a complete mix of emotions. And and it felt like the end of a chapter because Adam was there and that was the start of everything. And they was both just there. And, and, and yeah, it was, it was crazy. I was, I, when they left, I broke down in tears and I was like, why am I crying? Like, I'm kind of happy, but like, I'll never, I felt like I, I'd let the other victims down in a way. I felt like I was the person who's finally going to get justice for everyone. This guy's finally going to get away. Hopefully my case, when he gets found guilty for that, the other ones will open up. You know, that's the kind of thing I was thinking. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, it felt like I'd let everyone down, every survivor down. And and, and it's also like he, you never got him to openly admit to what he did or in anything. So you didn't get that level of justice that you'd probably sought for so yeah. long. Um, how did he pass away? 
he's still under investigation. It's under suspicious circumstances, so it's either suicide or um, like murder or something like that. Wow, that's um, it's really annoying. I think. Yeah, yeah. I can't, I would feel that it was really annoying if he did take his own life because, you know, I mean, not no anybody suiciding is is an awful circumstance for them to yeah. feel like there's no way out, but for somebody in his position to have the final say almost and take you know his life and take his secrets with him, um, must be incredibly frustrating. Um, he's like he still had the control. Like he was always focused about having the control the whole time, and like I wanted to take that away from him, you know. And and you know he still had that control. He, he chose, and I feel like that's why he's done it. I feel like it is a suicide, and you know, I feel like that's why he did it to yeah. keep that control of the situation. And you know, it hurt so many people. He he basically killed one boy, and you know, good good written's like. Like I said on my video, I hope he never rests in peace. I hope he's going through torture right now because he was never sorry for what he did. He would have done it again. He probably did do it again. And if he got away with this, which I think he knew that he wouldn't, it was the thing is, oh, I forgot to mention this, but he literally had a letter three days before confirming the court date. That's how close it was. So it, to me, this is how it's how it's gone. He's seen the letter and then he's thought, shit. And then, uh, yeah, and then killed himself. Yeah knowing that it's kind of all about to crumble down around him um, and he's not going to have control anymore, definitely. I mean, it does make sense and fit a narrative that makes sense, but um, I guess... the first first case that he's ever done where the victim's speaking against him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it wouldn't be shocking, I think, you know, the more and more you reach out and the more and more this story um, is shared and spoken about in regards to him, um, that there would probably be many many more um, victims, sadly, um, especially yeah. if he's had access to children in a situation like at a church. That's it, yeah. It's, um, yeah, it feels very very odd still, like it's still quite recent, but, um, yeah. So you've gone through absolute hell um, to get to this point and, you know, I think speaking the way that you do is really wonderful and you're going to do so much just by sharing this for other survivors um, of sexual abuse and especially young young men um, who have gone through this type of abuse. Um, I think it's really wonderful what you've done and I just want to commend you for it. And what you're doing now actually um, is you've started your own project out of, um, out of all of this. Do you mind telling everybody about what you're doing now um, as a part of Edge of the Bed? Yeah, so the edge of the bed is a page and a podcast. It's um, it's like a community for survivors. It's not like just about my story. I want it to be a page where we speak about different topics of abuse, where we share loads of stories, and you know we can come together and relate with each other, and hopefully reach people out there who've never spoken out. And I kind of just want it to be such a safe place and comfy space, and you know where we can all come together and speak. And I want to extend it as well. I want to do in-person support groups and, and yeah, I just want to take it as, as far as we can and reach as many people as we can, because, you know, I'm 19 and it's, I feel like it's very rare that someone at my age speaks about this. And I want to encourage other survivors out there around this age, you know, 19, 20, mid twenties to um, just speak up and, you know, the normal age for people, well, not the normal age, but, the most common age is later on in life and and people deal with this secret for so long. I just want it to become this o- more open topic and less stigmatized, especially for young guys as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head there and it's really, um, it's really important that we have this advocacy space and safe spaces for people to talk about um, what they've gone through. And, you know, recently in Australia there was a Royal Commission um, into institutional child sexual abuse. And what that found was that on average, it takes 35 years for somebody who's been a victim of child sexual abuse to come forward, 35 years. And I think it's really important, like you said, that we intervene early. Um, There are chances that you can get, you know, financial support um, as a victim of crime, especially in the state that I live in, in Victoria. 
even without a court case, there are support services. There are so many wonderful things that are established to help people go through this. At the end of the day, for everybody, having a court case and going through that prosecution might not be what they want. But what you're doing, I think, is an incredible way to do it. And I think because you are a young man yourself, it is a really safe place to listen to your story and hear the way that you speak and allow especially more men to come forward themselves at a younger age about what they went through. Yeah, thank you. I mean, for me personally, like I'm I'm not the best speaker. I'm not the most motivational speaker, but I just want to be real. I just want to, you know, tell my whole truth and, and don't try to hide or, or, you know, just show that you don't have to be ashamed of what happened and and it doesn't matter how you tell it, you, you just tell your truth and and do it, yeah. That's absolutely right. And the shame shouldn't be with the person who's been a victim of crime. The shame needs to lie with the person who's with the perpetrator. Yeah, that's so true. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Um, where can people um, find your page and podcast? Yeah, so it's um, at the edge of the bed on Instagram. That's where I'm most active. I do have a Facebook page, but I'm most active and I do loads of interactive stuff on Instagram. Uh, and the podcast is the same, the edge of the bed, and that's on Spotify. I think it's on uh, all of them, I think. Um, you can also say to your Alexa, play the edge of the bed podcast, which I found really cool. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so try that out if you want. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And I'll link everything um, in the show notes for this episode as well. What I'll also do is link in some support services specifically for the UK um, as well. So anything, this this discussion might have brought up some stuff for, for a lot of different listeners. And I encourage you to call local crisis services. There are local crisis services um, in the UK and in Australia. I'll link them all in the show notes for this episode as well. But for now, this is Reclaim Me signing off. This content may have been distressing or triggering for some listeners. In Australia, for national crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 131114. For more resources, please see the show notes for this episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.